I just picture him walking through his vineyard with his, 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 his little pruning knife. He's not got his big axe laid at the root for judgment. He's not got his winnowing fork, but he's, he's looking through his vineyard and he's got his pruning knife and he's the husbandman just evaluating every little individual vine in the vineyard, looking at where each one needs the attention of that, that knife that we're going to talk about. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good to see you guys again from uh, GCC. Some, how many people here other than uh, Jason were at Rudy's wedding the other day? Anyone else go to Rudy's wedding? Oh, just y'all. All right. One of our GCC folks got married just the other day. Well, open your Bibles, please, to John 15, and we will just be reading the first three verses of John 15. So John 15, 1 through 3. And the title of the sermon, I already told uh, Carlos back there, is going to be Lovingly Pruned. Lovingly Pruned. Pruned. This is kind of that section that the emphasis is very often the abiding, the abide in me. You can't bear any fruit apart from me. But this pruning reality is uh, very prevalent, very important, very necessary in the Christian life. So I thought it would be good to give that a bit of airtime and consideration this morning. So I will read the text. It's very brief. And then we'll just pray together. John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, the true vine, into this world to teach us with these perfect, these perfect symbolisms, this perfect imagery. Jesus, we desire that your spirit be in our midst to apply the, the preaching of your word in a, in, a, in a felt way, in a helpful way, in exactly the way that is needful for each one present. Thank you, Father, that we're, we're not here cast upon our, our abilities. I'm just a little weak, forgiven man, but I, I have your word here, so Lord, would you would you do the work? I don't have to be nervous. It's, it's you applying your word to your people. You won't leave us alone, Lord. We're asking that you, you do give a sense of your help in the preaching, a sense of your help in the hearing, Lord God, the different distractions that can cloud our minds, preoccupations. Lord, we know we don't come to this building unopposed. There is a spiritual warfare that wages all about us, Lord God. If we could see the invisible, we might see enemies, Lord, subtle enemies seeking to distract. Please, Lord, grant that we should have in these unfolding moments clear air in our listening, Lord God. 
just listening, listening for what your spirit might be saying through the, the simple preaching of your word. Lord, attend to this with the power of your spirit and help your, your beloved people. We, we love you. We trust you. We're cast upon you this morning, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just start from the very beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking to just 11 of his, his very special inner circle, his 11 branches, if you will. At this point already, Judas has sort of showed his cards. He's, he's, he's ran away quickly, and so it's, it's just the 11 walking with Jesus, and he's giving them these parting words. This is right after the, the last supper, m- moments away from, from the crucifixion. And he's giving them this, this precious discourse, this precious teaching, just another agricultural word picture for them to understand how they are to relate to him, who he is, who the Father is. And if you just trace back through the Gospels, there's, it's just plenteous. <laughs> it's bursting with agricultural imagery. It's, it's just there. You can't escape it. God the Father loves to communicate this way. And the Son, sent on the Father's errands, is just here speaking just the words that the Father gave him um, so that we might understand, so that through this unique, perfect expression, he reveals himself, his self-revelation through these metaphors. And so he starts Jesus by saying to his 11 and to us, I am the true vine. So I just want to look at a little bit of the Old Testament threads that um, sort of undergird this and precede this because this is not just a, a, a new thing that Jesus is introducing. If, if, if these guys have read their, their Old Testament, um, then they will have perhaps have had maybe their, their ears perk up and say, oh, yeah, that, that part in Isaiah. Oh, oh yeah, that part in, in Jeremiah, that part in Zechariah. This stuff is, is, is all peppered throughout. It's not just Jesus comes on the scene and suddenly there's a bunch of agricultural references. It's all through the Old Testament too. So I just want to look at a couple of those briefly as we look at Jesus revealing his identity as the true vine. So in Isaiah 11.10, we hear that he's the root vine. Of Jesse. I won't read it all. You don't have to turn there if you don't like, but I'll be reading just real quickly from Isaiah 11. And it says there, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This branch, it's a hymn. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And I could keep reading, but we'll just keep moving. But we get introduced in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, to this this root of Jesse. Then again, it's expressed in Isaiah 11, uh, verse 10. It says, In that day the root of Jesse 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And Romans 15.12 actually quotes Isaiah 11.10 and, and gives us confidence and no question that it's, this is talking about Jesus. And then Jeremiah 23.5, we see him as this righteous capital B branch. Jeremiah 23.5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B branch. Translators did a good job there. I will raise up for David a righteous, capital B branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous, capital B, branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Then Zechariah verses three, or chapter 3, verse 8 says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the capital B, branch. Zechariah 6.12 says the same, same thing again, except for this time it says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So it's, it's all foreshadowing Jesus. All these prophets are saying with numerous times, numerous in, imagery, agricultural imagery, He's the root of Jesse. He's a righteous branch. He's the man whose name is the branch, not just a branch. And then, just to cap this off real quick, it's very exciting to me. The Revelation 22:16. I'll read this one for you. says, I, this is Jesus speaking, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Then Jesus self-identifies. He says this. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I, I think that's just such a cool nod to the eternality of God. I am the source of David, and yet I, I humble myself and become the, the branch from David. It's just incredible that the one who before Abraham was, I am the eternal one, the one who was there, present at creation, is both the source of everything and he enters into the world as the branch, the, the offspring of David, the root and the offspring of David. So this is Jesus here starting saying, that's me, I'm the vine, I'm the vine. So our cast of characters is Jesus, the, the true vine. Then he, then he moves to the Father, he says, my father is the vine dresser. And I really like just digging into the, the words here and what that actually means. The, that word vine dresser is georgos or farmer, tiller of the soil, and the one that's my very favorite because it communicates the most intimacy, in my opinion. Not just farmer, not just tiller of the soil, kind of sounds like a job, um, but husbandman. Just let me say it again with that word in the place. And my father is the husbandman. 
I just picture him walking through his vineyard with his, 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 his little pruning knife. He's not got his big axe laid at the root for judgment. He's not got his winnowing fork, but he's, he's looking through his vineyard, and he's got his pruning knife, and he's the husbandman just evaluating every little individual vine in the vineyard, looking at where each one needs the attention of that, that knife that we're going to talk about, the pruning knife. But my father is the farmer or the tiller of the soil or the husbandman. This is who my father is. So we do find all this agricultural typology and symbolism all throughout Scripture, and this is just how God has chosen to reveal himself to us using this stuff. It's, it's everywhere. And I could multiply cross-references, but I won't in the interest of time just to look at different Old Testament uh, parts. There's one um, in Isaiah, again, where he just talks about Israel and how Israel is his vineyard. And he's going to his vineyard and he's looking for fruit in his vineyard. And instead of finding good fruit, he finds these wild grapes, these uncultivated. Even though it's his vineyard, he's, he's expecting good fruit out of it. And he just sees just chaos and and. and, and He's looking for righteousness, but instead he sees this outcry of injustice. But this is the father. This is who the father is. He's the, the farmer, the husbandman, the vine dresser. And then he pivots over into the other people in this. We've got the cast of characters, the true vine, Jesus, the vine dresser or the husbandman, which is the father, and then the branches, which is us. It's, it's, it's people. And he says in verse 2 over there, Jesus is telling us, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So I do have to like address the elephant in the room here, the problem that could look like it's being presented in uh, verse 2. Every branch, think about this, what does this sound like it's saying, just on a first reading? Every branch in me, in me, they're in Jesus. They're, they're a real branch. They're in him. And it says that does not bear fruit. How could a branch in Jesus not bear fruit? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. And then if you look in verse 6, it talks about being burned and stuff. It's like, Wait, what? Is this like the, the verse that can be the, the, the nail in the coffin of, of eternal security and the perseverance of the saints and, and like once saved, always saved? Oh, throw it out there because look, it says right there, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit takes it away, cuts it off, throws it into the fire. Is that what's going on here? I don't think that is what's going on here. I want to address this tension. I... So there's two sort of ways to reconcile what's going on in here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So someone like a Spurgeon will say something like, well, when he's saying every branch in me, he's saying every branch that appears to be in me and doesn't bear fruit. So these are people that are like, pretenders. They're just associated with Jesus, but they're not really in Jesus. And mind you, this is happening right after Judas dips and leaves and is on his way to betray him. So 
people will say, and someone like a Spurgeon will assert that the in me here doesn't really mean in me. It actually just means, you know, people that are kind of associated with Christ, but not truly savingly associated with Christ. And you see instances of this, like with the, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. You got the wise virgins who have oil in their lamp and they're on their way to meet um, the, the bridegroom. And then you got the foolish ones who they're with the wedding party. They're hanging out in the same place. They even have lanterns. They're so convincing. They seem like they're going to the same destination with keeping the same good company. Not, they're not all out there outside of the joined people of God. They're, they're there in the building. They're there. And yet, they're not, they're not real. So, a Spurgeon will say that in this verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away is actually referring to people that are not really in Christ, savingly, which there are many of. I'm sure some of you can think of someone that looked like they were doing good. They looked like they were in Christ, and then, boom, it's like, what? What happened? They looked like they, they were like the foolish version, where they, they put on a very good show for a while, and then they, they were gone. They, they showed their cards. So Spurgeon would assert that this is the sort of person that's being spoken of here in verse 2. But I found, and that was the view that I had before I studied this out a little bit more. And now I'm leaning more towards a different view. Um, who here has heard of James Montgomery Boyce? James Montgomery Boyce. All right. Casey, right? James Montgomery Boyce. He's not some wild liberal theologian trying to redefine the Bible and make it say something to suit his own hopes and appetites. He's a reputable, good, solid guy. As far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, solid guy. He actually has a different take on this section that I found to be very interesting and quite persuasive, actually. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This word takes away is airo, and it is very often defined as to raise up from the ground, to elevate. So it has two uses. It could be raise up from the ground and elevate, or it could be to take off, carry off, remove. So if we're going with sort of the more traditional understanding, the one that even Prince of Preacher Spurgeon goes for, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he removes. It's not bearing fruit. It's like the barren fig tree fruitless thing removed, dug up, why should it waste any more soil? But Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, and many others, I did not know how contested and disputed and controversial this verse was before I got into it. I didn't even seek to emphasize this, but I want to because it's there and it deserves to be uh, given some attention. But just listen to this and how it sounds, the flavor it gives, when you just replace it with the way that this word takes away is more often translated. Every branch in me, every real Christian, every one who I've saved, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he raises it up from the ground. He elevates it so that it can get more of the sunlight it needs, so that it can be given more a chance at fruit-bearing, 
doesn't that just kind of ring a little bit more true to the character of Jesus? Now listen, if I'm wrong, I'm willing to be corrected on this. But I thought that this was a very stirring thing, and I identify with it. When I first came across this, I cried. Now, because I cried, does that mean that's the accurate translation? No. But I thought in my own life how fruitless seasons seem to pass, and instead of the Lord saying, this guy's hopeless, get rid of him, throw him away. Instead, he just gives me a repositioning. He helps me. He brings me to San Antonio and puts me in a church where I grow so much more than I've ever grown anywhere else. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, oh, he's so patient. Remember in, in Luke 13, 6-9, the barren fig tree, they come, they're looking for fruit, and the, the case is made, why should it waste soil? And then patience is given. Wait one more year. Just wait one more year. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to dig around it. Then, if it doesn't bear fruit, okay, fine. But here we see the patience of God sort of magnified that rather than being quick to just drive that axe into the root and say, you're not going to waste my soil, just more of this long-suffering farmer, patient vine dresser, looking at the, the plant that looks nigh unto death, and instead of saying, get rid of it, says, give it a little bit more time. Here, let me try raising it up a little bit. Let me try getting it closer to sun. Let me give it some more chance. You can tell by my tone of voice that I'm close unto convinced that this is the better way to understand this verse. But I am willing to be wrong. I came to this verse convinced of Spurgeon's position. Fruitless Christians, they're, they're fakers. They're pretenders. They're like the foolish versions. They get cut off. They're not real. But then seeing this different thing, it changed my perspective. It did. But every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he perhaps raises up. Or perhaps we do have scriptural uh, credibility for Spurgeon's take on it, that he, he takes it away. It's like the barren fig tree that after that year, interestingly, the, the parable of the barren fig tree, it is not resolved. We never find out if after the year of waiting, it did bear fruit or didn't bear fruit. The Lord leaves it open. <laughs> the Lord doesn't tell us the conclusion. He just says, give it time. Give it time. If it doesn't, fine. Yes, we'll get rid of it. But if it does, we're not going to get rid of it. Hasn't the Lord been merciful with you guys in, in fruitless seasons? Hasn't he been patient with you? Did he throw you away? I hope I'm not being too biased here. Spurgeon's view is very credible as well. But... We can move on to the second section where it says, and, and this is where I really want to spend the majority of the time, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So I just have a couple of points under this section about pruning, just the pruning of the Christian life. It is an absolute guaranteed reality. And that is sort of just the first little heading. I have a bunch of words that begin with P for anyone who's a fan of alliteration. But it's promised. Pruning is promised. It says here, and every branch, every single individual branch that does bear fruit, guaranteed, 
He prunes. It is a promised reality of the Christian life. You are going to be pruned. You can look in the rearview mirror of your Christian life and point back to a time when God had done that very thing to you. He pruned you. So we have to define pruning before we go really any further. Otherwise, it's going to not really land the way it ought to land. But what's pruning? Feel free to shout. Anybody uh, have houseplants or uh, a farm? Cutting it so that it produces more. It's, it's, say it again. Remove the dead or the dark. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, my wife uh, is more of a houseplant kind of gal, not so much fruit-bearing stuff, although we do have a little lemon tree on the outside of the house. But um, sometimes the stuff that gets cut off doesn't look diseased or anything, right? Sometimes it's, it's just leafy overgrowth, leafy overgrowth. Stuff that's, it's not diseased, but it's not fruit either. It's not outright sin, but it's, it's not helpful. It's not profitable. And so pruning, in its simplest way that I could define it, is just removal. Righteous removal sanctified subtraction, careful cutting. It is very precise, it is very intentional, very deliberate, and it is very effective. It works. The great vine dresser, our father, is absolutely brilliant in his means that he employs to get what glorifies him, which is Christians that bear much fruit. And Christians that bear much fruit, I would posit, are much pruned. Pruning is promised. It's guaranteed. Another one of our alliteration points here is that pruning is perpetual and a same kind of idea, but perennial. It's not like it's enough to have this happen once. It happens constantly throughout the life cycle of a vine, and it happens constantly in the life cycle of a Christian. Now, when I say constantly, I don't mean like every single day the shears are coming out and it's just butchering, just scraping, and that the Christian life is pure misery and subtraction and pain. That's not it at all, but it happens in a kind of rhythmic, cyclical, as-needed individual uh, fashion. So, the great vine dresser just walking through the vineyard, really examining, really seeing the state of each little vine and exactly what's going on with it. Is this little vine shooting out just tons of leaves? And here's the interesting thing. I didn't, you know, I don't want to belabor the similitude and the parable because if we press parables too hard, we can get in trouble. It's, it's meant to communicate how this thing is like this thing not exact to this thing, but I do think that we can lean into this similitude a little bit and find some some good application. In the life of a vine, it can, if left alone, the vine can just produce so much leafy overgrowth that it actually covers the poor little grapes that are underneath 
that are trying to grow from getting the, the necessary nutrients and sap and sunlight. They can create this shade where the, the real stuff, now the, the, the leafy overgrowth is, is very showy. It can look nice. It can indicate health. Like, oh, look, my, my vine is so healthy. It's, it's got all these green leaves. But the, the, the vine dresser doesn't grow vines for leaves. He grows it for grapes. He wants wine. He wants something sweet to the taste and sweet to eat. You, you don't eat those leaves. I mean, grape leaves. We get grape leaves sometimes, Greek food, grape leaves. They have use, but it's not the primary use. But these little vines can, can have so much leafy overgrowth that it's not like it's bad. It's not like it's diseased. It's just not what is most glorifying not what is its intended primary purpose. And so the parallel to our own lives is that there's so often stuff that the, the time, the energy, the sap of our life can get given to, and it's, it's not inherently evil or sinful, but it's just not necessary. I'm reminded of, of the place, I believe it's in Hebrews 12, I think verse 1, uh, where it makes this distinction between you, you lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and you, you cast aside and lay aside the weight. So there's sin, a, a diseased part of your life, a sinful part that obviously if, if, if the Lord sees as the, the great vine dresser something diseased and rotten and sinful coming out of the branch that is your life, he's going to take away that sinful thing. But he could also take away things that that seem kind of harmless to you in the moment and kind of painful and hard to let go of. Like, why are you taking that away? What's wrong with that, th that cluster of leaves, Lord? Why can't I just have those leaves? And we could be very attached to it. This pruning thing is it's, it's promised, it's guaranteed, it's perpetual, it happens repeatedly because we keep on producing these things that are not the point. They're, they're, they're extraneous, they're superfluous, they're, they're not fruit. But it can be very painful when this happens, and that's another one of the P alliterations that we want to give here, is that pruning is painful because it's not taking away something that's just growing on you. It's growing from you. It is part of you. And so there's a pain associated with this, which makes me uh, think about the, the other Hebrews verse where it says, no discipline is pleasant in, in the moment, but it is painful. But afterwards, for those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. So this is without a doubt painful, but God when he treats someone as a son or a daughter, he disciplines those he loves. We read that in, in Revelation 3. Those he loves, he does chastise. Those fruits that are, those, those branches that are fruitful, that he loves them, sometimes he has to take that precise but sharp and painful pruning knife and just hold it in one hand and take the pruning knife in the other hand and just scrape away that thing that is just not necessary. And I'm not going to pretend like it does not hurt. There are degrees of things that are pruned and degrees of pain. I guess the more you get attached to it, the more it probably hurts. But things as harmless, quote-unquote harmless, as a hobby or 
a expectation that you have could be pruned and it might it, there might be a momentary sting um, but the Lord removes it and it's it's apparent to you quite quickly wow that was wise that was good I'm so glad the Lord subtracted that and removed it and took it off from my life but there's other things that in the moment you just can't see the sense of it why would you take that away Lord what why can't I just hold on to this little thing? Sometimes it's something as significantly attached to you as a relationship or a ambition, a career, some expectation or goal or idea about your life. You're like, I just thought this was it. I thought this was the direction. I thought that person was the person that I was going to marry or I thought this idea, this whatever outcome, these things that are just attached to you and growing forth from you. It's, it's, it's not, I do not in any way want to diminish how painful this process can be. But I'm sure many of you can point in the, in the rear view mirror of your life and look back with greater clarity and say, in the moment, that really did hurt. But man, that was good. What the Lord did there in taking that thing away was so wise, so good. And I don't want to romanticize it because sometimes you don't get that hindsight, retrospective clarity. Sometimes it's just painful subtraction and you just have to yield and trust, God, you're good even if I don't get it, even if I have no idea why you put me through that painful cutting, that painful subtraction. But pruning is promised. Every Christian goes through this. It is perpetual or perennial. It is needed because we, left to ourselves, will produce lots of extra extraneous superfluous stuff. Um, I'm reminded, it's pain, yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, what's that one, Hebrews, where it talks about prior to conversion, the Gentiles were like a wild, uncultivated uncultivated olive shoot and then they're taken and they're grafted in to what is a cultivated olive tree and so I just like that idea of cultivation implies care before we're saved the Lord isn't subtracting all this stuff he's, he's just letting us be kind of wild and bear fruits unto death and then he takes us and he puts us contrary to nature, grafts us into this olive tree, and he cultivates us. We're no longer uncultivated, wild olive shoots, but we're now this cultivated, cared-for thing. And that brings me to the next point here, which is that the pruning is, another P word, precious. He is doing this because he cares deeply for the Christian's ultimate good and for his own glory. He's glorified by us bearing much fruit, and he loves his own glory and us too much to just let us sit there and be in a wild, uncultivated state. For him to love us and care about us is for him to prune us and protect us from the things that we would get ourselves into if we were just left to our own devices. Pruning is precious because it shows his care. He, he cultivates and he cuts because he cares deeply. So it's painful, it's precious, it's promised, it's perpetual, 
And it's very personal. That's why it's painful. But it's, I like how it says here in the verse, it says, every branch, and I, I could insert the word um, without doing violence to the text, every individual branch, he's looking at this thing one by one. He's not taking a sweeping, broad stroke of a sickle and just saying, oh, looks like it's pruning time. Shwink! And just sort of carelessly, thoughtlessly hacking away at the entire vineyard and saying, all right, well, you know, let's just hope that this accomplishes widespread fruitfulness and if there's some damage done in between, no big deal. No, it's so personalized and individualized. Every single branch is getting this intimate assessment of are they putting out too much leaves? Is there too much extra hobbies, extra stuff, extra preoccupations, all sorts of things in life that could look sort of innocuous and harmless, and let, yet the vine dresser comes along and looks at it and says, oh, I want fruitfulness, so I'm going to have to do something to you, take something away from you that maybe you could look at your brother and sister, and th- God's not taking that away from them. But it's so individualized that he sees each person and can make the perfect diagnosis at the perfect time to take things away. So it's very personal, very individualized, very caring. And of course, its, its ultimate purpose is that through pruning more fruit I shall bear. You guys sing that song, Rejoice in the Lord, for he makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. When I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. And then it has that line that says, uh, through pruning more fruit I shall bear. That's what God's after here. He wants us to be fruitful. You could only imagine what it was like before the curse kicked in, in just a natural agricultural sense. A result of the curse is that, hey, y'all, now the, the food that comes out of the ground, along with the food, there's going to be lots of sweat on your brow. You're going to have to fight the earth to make stuff come out of it. And there's going to be these thorns. That's just the ground. But human beings, how much more after the fall, these people that would have just walked and had no sin or flesh or devil to fight against. Can you imagine just the incredible fruitfulness? But now, after the fall, there's just such a resistance to our fruitfulness. And we need such interventions from the vine dresser to ensure that we actually do what glorifies him most and what is actually our very best that we we bear fruit so he's he's doing this pruning this painful cutting for very good purposes and it indicates that he does love us what else do i have here sorry my notes are a little wild But yeah, just to zoom out and sort of look at this from an even wider application, um, I will grant that the text here does have it more zoomed in on individuals, but I think there is some sense in which you might be able to apply this in a corporate sense that the fruitful church, he prunes the local body that he loves, Obviously, he's concerned for the period of the church, so church discipline is a thing, and there is a that could be regarded as a pruning. But what about when people just leave and it's not because of church discipline? I'll just say as a, a way of personal anecdote that 
when we lost lots of members, they just left. And these were very solid members. A thing that brought great consolation to my own heart was viewing it as perhaps the Lord's own very precise, very wise pruning that he led certain people to go to other churches and that he could graft them in elsewhere and they could be fruitful there and that there is actual good that could come about in the body of uh, that has been pruned, that has lost members. Because I will tell you what I saw after we lost lots of members. I got to see other people do things that they would have never done unless that very fruitful, good, helpful leader or church member was gone. And then it's like you just see the timid, shaking hand raise and say, I I could try teaching in the children's Sunday school. I I could help with with the evangelism. And then you fast forward over a a span of months and years, and you see this person thriving fruitful because of the church losing members. In the moment, it just looks so discouraging. Like, why? Why are we getting smaller? And then, if you just hold on a little while longer, just wait another year, you see what happens after people are gone and and the the people that are still there growing and maturing and tapping in and doing necessary things. It's very encouraging to me to take this perspective and and think that perhaps God has very wise sovereign purposes in a church temporarily shrinking. To bring it back to the agricultural references, this is so interesting to me, with with these grapevines, do you know that they actually are not best served by the quote-unquote perfect soil? They benefit from soil that's not that great. They actually don't produce the sweetest uh, grapes that make the sweetest wine if they're like babied and and watered a ton and there's there's no storms, the the soil is just so meticulously um, kept up with. It is actually beneficial for the resilient grape. It, it, It pushes more sap and it expends more effort through stressful conditions and makes sweeter grapes. Can you just see the parallels there that are present for the individual Christian life and perhaps for even more expanded out corporately that when a church goes through hard stuff I mean, you see pictures of this. You could, I think Jenny Montgomery, our beloved piano player, sent my dear wife a picture of a tree after it's been pruned. It just looks sad. There are times where the, the poor little grapevine just looks so bare and dry. And then you, you go up to it and you cut more parts away from it and it just looks so pitiful to the eye. Like, what? Why? Why are you doing injury, what looks like injury, to something that's already just holding on for dear life? And yet, you fast forward, and that injury, a year later, when the time comes for fruit on the vine, you see it and you're like, what? It's astonishing. It's beautiful. The Lord does these things on purpose. These agricultural references are so rich. And they're true for individuals, certainly. And I would put to you, perhaps even on a corporate level, that the fruitful church receives some measure of 
pruning. And so that was a balm to my own soul when our church back in San Antonio lost many members. And just to, to hold on and to trust that the Lord is at work even in things that look initially like a, a frowning, difficult providence. Well, I don't know how I'm doing on time, and my notes are a little bit scattered here. So I will just conclude with a couple of little closing applications here. Let's take a look. Oh, yeah, there's one other point that I think is worth, worth bringing. Um, you could hear pruning, and you could think that this is an entirely passive endeavor. That, well, you never pass by, you know, a well-kept house with great landscaping and look at the, the, the shrubs and say, wow, those shrubs really take great care of themselves, huh? Look at, look at how groomed they are. Look at how tidy and put together. They really care about their presentation. Of course, we do not say that. We say, oh, wow, their, their owner or the person caring for that land takes care of them, and they just sit there and receive it. So if we press this similitude and parable too hard, we can come away with the conclusion that pruning is a purely passive thing. And at some level, in some sense, it is. Sometimes God orchestrates providences that are way out of our control, and it just happens to us. We are not really involved. We're just there taking the cut, regardless of any obedience or inclination of our own. God's just doing it to us. So sometimes, yes, God is just pruning us, and we are in a passive position. But I think there's enough times within Scripture that indicate that there are a participation that can happen too. I mean, we, we see times like the one I mentioned before about cast aside every sin. You do the subtraction. You get rid of the thing. You, as it were, as a little branch, yield up your leaves to the vine dresser and say, Father, I'm all yours. You take away what you want to take away from me. You know better. I submit willingly. You even ask and probe by prayer and say, Lord, is there any way in me that's displeasing to you? Is there something that's ripe for cutting? Lord, I, I, want, I want to I yield myself to that. I want to participate. And of course, you can think of Jesus' words where he says, hey, does your right hand cause you to sin? Wait for me to cut it off in my sovereign way. No, take action against that thing. You cut it off. So I'm reminded of the verse where it says, it is him at work in us to both will and to work according to his good pleasure. God uses means, and sometimes the means that he uses to prune you is by him convicting you and leading you to let go of a thing, to forsake a thing, to relinquish a thing, to come to the conclusion by reading the word that, oh, you know what? It's time to let go of this, whatever this is. But I think I've gone long enough. Um, closing applications. Closing applications are, yeah, just reflect and ask God, is there anything in my life that is ripe for removal? For all I know, the Spirit of God is presently highlighting some little thing inside of different people's minds that it's like, maybe that, maybe that thing is just leafy overgrowth. Leafy overgrowth that is actually taking sap out of the branch that could go elsewhere, 
time, energy, attention, involvement, commitment, going to something that really at the end of the day isn't spiritual fruit. Don't ignore that if that's happening in this present moment. Or perhaps it doesn't happen at the present moment. Perhaps you go and read the scriptures during the week and through the ministry of the word, some little thing is highlighted to you. But a just simple application is reflect, ask God, and be open to assume just a humble posture of, Lord, I'm willing and ready if there's anything you by your spirit want to identify that needs to be subtracted, removed, cut off, so that I might bear more fruit. And then by way of application, also just reflect and praise God for how you might be able to just look back right now from where you sit in the present tense on previous instances of when God was just so faithful to not let you continue pressing all this sap into something that actually was not good, where in hindsight you could look and say, that was wise, that was good. Let it be a source of encouragement for you that the Father cares for you. He cares for you enough to to prune you. It's actually like kind of an identification mark that you are truly His, that you are truly in Him, that He has purposely, carefully, kindly taken things away that weren't good for you. And let that also inform greater confidence that, you know what, Lord, it might not make sense in the moment, but anything that you want to take away from me in the near future or now, It's going to be worth it because it was worth it in the past. You were faithful when you did it that last time. So those are just some two concluding applications. Let's uh, close with prayer. Oh, Father, you are the vine dresser. You're the farmer. You're the husbandman. You're very, very, very aware of each individual person's state, you know where there's just all this overgrowth, stuff that is not really serving your kingdom purposes. I don't know those things, but you know those things. You can reveal those things, Lord. My own heart, there could be stuff I'm not even aware of and that you just identify. Lord, please do cause for your Holy Spirit to search and to cut where you need a cut, even if it needs to hurt, Lord God, because we do want what you want. We want to want what you want. We want to desire the kind of fruitful lives that glorify you. You're glorified by this, that we bear much fruit. Help us, Lord. We're so, we can't tend to ourselves. We, we, we need your, your loving pruning knife. We need your care. We need your wise, discerning, vine dresser eye to help us be fruitful. Lord, please do. Bless this little church. Bless the individual lives that compose this church and make us a fruitful people for your own glory and namesake. We pray all these things in the name of the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.